Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. It's our happy privilege now to open the scriptures together, and I want to take a text today from the third chapter of Jeremiah and the 15th verse. This morning I want to explore from the Holy Scripture a theology of pastoral ministry, and over the next couple of weeks as well, because the pastorate is one of the primary ways that Jesus Christ provides for his church. The Lord says, I will give you pastors according to mine heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. Now, the word pastor means shepherd, and it is a very rich metaphor and expressive image. We're not as familiar in a commercialized society like we live in with the agricultural kind of scenes that were so prominent in Bible times. But I suggest that uh, shepherds were common back in the day. In the ancient times, shepherding was a lifestyle. It was not merely a hobby. Somebody may have some goats or sheep that they keep on their property, maybe to keep the grass and the weeds down, or perhaps as a hobby. But shepherding was a way of life in the lives of many in times past. It wasn't even a commercial venture, just a business kind of arrangement where they had these different sections of their life and then they had some sheep or goats. It was instead a lifestyle. In Luke chapter 2 verse 8, when Jesus was born, we read that there were shepherds abiding in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. You might say, why were they out there with them during the shades of night, and it's because the shepherd lived with his sheep. He was with them 24-7. He stayed with them at night and made sure that they were safe as they rested, and he stayed with them during the day and led them to new pastures. It was a lifestyle. I was interested a few years ago when I traveled to Africa to witness the Maasai in East Africa's Great Rift Valley. You've probably seen documentaries or pictures of the Maasai tribes people who still live in that valley. Their population is approximately two million strong according to recent estimates. They're a nomadic and a pastoral kind of people. The Maasai, you may know, dress in brightly colored clothing. Many of them have these red sashes, and sometimes purple is used, and they literally live with their flocks. The Maasai are shepherds. The shepherd will travel with his flock from one pasture to another throughout this tremendous landscape called the Great Rift Valley in eastern Kenya and northern Tanzania, and they are a very interesting kind of culture or subculture. They don't really interact, for the most part, with society at large. They live by themselves and mind their own business, but they're very brave. Back in the day, Maasai young men would prove their masculinity and their worthiness to take a wife by killing a lion. 
And it was the Maasai who stood with great courage and calmness against the British soldiers when Britain tried to colonize parts of Kenya and Tanzania. The Maasai tribes people have been around for many years. They are shepherds. Again, it's not just a hobby. It's not just a business venture. It's a lifestyle to live with their flocks. In the olden times, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the heads of the tribes of Israel were shepherds. In Genesis 47, verse 3, Jacob says, I am a shepherd, and my sons are shepherds, as were all of my fathers. King David, as you may know, was a shepherd. His father had sheep and Part of David's teenage responsibility was to oversee the flock in the hill country of Bethlehem, Judah. It was there that David had the experience in which a lion came to try to take a little lamb from the flock. And David slew the lion as a courageous shepherd protecting his flock with his bare hands. And on another occasion, a bear came. And David was blessed by God to slay the bear. You may remember he cited those two examples when Saul said, you're not able to take on Goliath. He said, well, let me tell you my experience. Here's my resume. I've slain a lion and a bear with my bare hands. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that David was a he-man. He was probably an ordinary teenager, but God gave him special strength on those two occasions, and he was courageous, of course, and David protected his flock. The prophet Amos was a shepherd, and God called him to preach. And the history of God's people throughout the Old Testament is set in the context of the pastoral lifestyle of a shepherd and his flock. For instance, in Song of Solomon, chapter 1, you may recall the question the Shulamite asked of her beloved. She said, Tell me, O thou whom my soul loveth, where thou feedest? and where thou makest thy flocks to rest at noon. So she's intrigued with this new bow. He's handsome, and she doesn't know he's the king yet, you know. The king has holdings in the hill country, and he's left the palace in Jerusalem to go down to check on his vineyards and his flocks, and they fall for each other. The king sets his love upon her, and she responds by being infatuated with him, and the earliest question she asked him is, where do you feed? Tell me where I can find you again. Tell me, O thou whom my soul lovest, where thou feedest, and where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon. For why should I be as one that turneth aside by the flocks of thy companions? I don't want to waste time stumbling upon one of your fellows or your friends. And his answer is, if thou know not, O thou fairest among women, Here's the way to find me. Go thy way forth by the footsteps of the flock. So you look to see where the sheep have been. You'll find me if you'll follow the footprints of the flock. And of course, this has wonderful overtones, doesn't it, to the gospel day and the love relationship that exists between the little child of God and his Savior, Jesus Christ, his shepherd. And I want to tell you, dear friends, once your heart has been touched and infatuated with love and admiration for the Good Shepherd, Jesus Christ, you're going to want to be where he is. And a good way to find him is to follow his people. Look where his people have been. Follow the footsteps of the flock. 
and you'll find your Savior once again. So this metaphor of shepherding is throughout the old Bible. It also resurfaces again and again in the New Testament. The Greek word in the New Testament, poimen, which is translated by the English word pastor, means shepherd. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, we read that the ascended Christ gave gifts unto men. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Now, the apostles and the prophets were temporary gifts or offices. They are the foundation of the church. The church is built, says Ephesians 2, on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The apostles, like Paul and Peter and James and John, were the official deputies of Jesus Christ. When he left, he left them in charge. He delegated his special authority to them. And whatever they bound on earth was bound in heaven. Whatever they loosed on earth was loosed in heaven. That is, they had his authority. That's why when Paul writes to some of these churches and says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, you better straighten up. <laughs> they better take that seriously because it was as if the Lord was speaking to them through his vicar on earth. Now, of course, we don't believe in an apostolic succession. We don't believe any preacher today has apostolic authority. But we do have the writings of the apostles in the New Testament. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. All of these letters in the New Testament are apostolic. That is, God inspired them to record the truths that the church would need in subsequent ages. So the apostles and prophets were foundational gifts, and they were temporary. They had special powers. These were men who had seen Jesus Christ personally and physically, the risen Christ. They were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. They had been given direct revelation. They had been taught directly. Now, I've been taught a lot by other men, indirectly, you know, second-handedly. I've heard preaching, and I've read books, and I've been taught by others. But Paul was taught directly. Peter was taught directly. The Lord revealed, flesh and blood did not reveal this unto them, but the Father which is in heaven. What I'm saying is the apostles were temporary. But what we do have remaining in the church are these last two, evangelists and pastors and teachers. Now that word pastor, again, is the Greek word poimen, meaning shepherd. Now what is an evangelist? An evangelist is someone who is interested in making converts. He preaches the gospel where the gospel has not been preached, and he testifies to people the good news of Christ and him crucified. And if the Lord has touched their hearts and they respond believingly to the gospel, then he's made a disciple. He's made a convert. Notice I didn't say he's made a child of God. I hope you understand there's a difference in somebody being a child of God and being a follower of Jesus Christ. God has many children in this world, a people as innumerable as the sands by the sea and the stars of the heaven out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. But few are on the narrow way of discipleship. Few there be that find it. He has many mansions for his children, a multitude, but you know his true followers are a minority in this world. Now, I don't believe a person can be a true follower unless he's already a child of God. 
But every child of God is not necessarily following Jesus in true discipleship today. And the purpose of the gospel is not to help the Lord make children of God. I don't go out trying to help the Lord populate heaven. I don't have that ability. They're dead in sins, and until he gives them life, then what I have to give them, the gospel, will make no sense, and it will not mean anything to them. But I'll tell you, once a child of God's been made, he says that we're to go into all the world, Matthew 28, 18, and teach all nations. Now, the word teach there means make disciples. And the word disciple, again, means learner or follower. Make a student, make a follower, make disciples of all nations and baptize those that believe, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. That's the evangelist's job. Now, I don't believe I have the gift of evangelism. I've not had a lot of success, I would say, in that vein. But even if you don't have the gift of an evangelist, every gospel minister is to do the work of an evangelist, as Paul tells Timothy. Paul tells Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. And may I say that I try to spread the good news far and wide. I try to take every opportunity at my disposal to sow good seed. I want to use print media, communications, radio, television, the airwaves, technology. I want to use every potential opportunity as well as in my personal life, talking to people, inviting people. I try to do the work of the evangelist. But you know, after a convert has been made and he's been baptized and a church has been established, do you know what needs to happen then? We need to disciple the disciples. That's where the pastor comes in, the pastor and the teacher. He gave some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. And I would say that the bulk of our activity is discipling the disciples. After he says, teach all nations, then he says, baptize those that are taught and then teach them again, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. So the two primary functions of the New Testament church are evangelism and then edification. That is, make disciples and then disciple the disciples, teach them further. And that's why we meet every Sunday, right, is to learn. We come here to learn. And the principal way that the minister pastors or shepherds the flock is by feeding them, teaching them the word of God. Our text again says, I will give you pastors, that is shepherds, according to my heart. God gives pastors. And he says, I'll give you somebody to lead you. I'll give you somebody to shepherd you. I'll give you someone to guard and protect you, to care for the flock. That's what the word pastor means. And I suggest that if God's chosen and redeemed people are called his sheep, that those that minister to the flock, we can understand why they're called pastors or shepherds. He's given the gospel ministry for the sake of caring for his little lambs and his little sheep. Now, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 in the New Testament, Peter says, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that should afterwards be revealed, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof. He's talking to the elders. And that is a New Testament title for 
those who are mature in the faith or gospel ministers. The elders, he says, you're to feed the flock. Notice how God's people are identified in this text as the flock of God. And what is the elder's job to feed them? Now that word feed is poimain, shepherd. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you. Now notice he didn't say which is 250 miles away from you or 500 miles away. Now I know there are cases where a pastor has to drive a long distance, but the ideal situation is for the shepherd to live with the sheep, for him to be among them, to be near them, because the fact is, this pulpit is more than just a preaching station. The goal of a pastor-flock relationship is not just to deliver a weekly sermon, and you say, well, okay, we've heard our sermon, that's all the Christianity we need, but you see, this is to be a lifestyle of Christianity. And the pastor is to set the pace, he's to model that dynamic by himself being totally dedicated and devoted to the cause of Christ as an example. So that not only does he teach the word publicly, but he lives the gospel that he professes. He walks the walk as well as talking the talk. In other words, that is leadership by example. And we'll talk about that, the Lord willing, as we proceed in this series of studies. But the point that I make is feeding, shepherding, is the essence of what it means to be a pastor. He's a shepherd. John chapter 21, you recall, I'm sure, the engagement that Jesus had with Peter after his resurrection. He came to Peter and he said, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? Now, Peter had boasted that he loved Jesus more than all the rest. Though all men should forsake you, I never will. I love you more than the rest. And Jesus now comes to him. And you know what's transpired in the meantime. Peter has denied Jesus three times the night of his crucifixion. Do you remember? Or night of his betrayal. And Jesus says, Simon, do you love me more than the rest? Lovest thou me more than these? And Peter feels that he's being put on the spot. And he says, yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And here's Jesus' response. Feed my lambs. Shepherd, poimain, my lambs. Then Jesus asked him the second time, Simon, lovest thou me? And Peter answered him again, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. And Jesus said, feed my sheep, shepherd my sheep. And then the third time, Jesus asked him again, Simon, lovest thou me? And it says, Peter was grieved that Jesus asked him the third time. And he said, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, I want you to notice, Peter had denied Jesus three times. Now he's given the opportunity to confess his love to Jesus three times. He had said, I don't know him, I know not the man, and he even cursed and swore, thinking that would somehow add force to his denial of Jesus. He had even cursed and swore, I've never met him. Peter had turned his back on the Savior when Jesus needed him the most, but now... Peter is given an opportunity to reconfess, to rededicate himself. Lord, I do love you. And if you really love me, here's what I want you to do. I want you to shepherd my sheep. Now notice he divides his flock into two categories, the lambs and the sheep. First, Jesus said, feed my lambs. Then the next two times, he says, feed my sheep. And we can understand from that that lambs are the young ones. You know, God's church has always had young people mixed with the more mature 
in its ranks. There's a tendency in the popular culture today and religious circles to segregate the youth from the grown-ups. The kids need their activities, but the grown-ups, they need the Word. And I'm telling you, dear friends, it's a hard transition once you get out of that youth group stage to finally sit and be content with the Word of God. I suggest that some of the innovation that's taken place in evangelical circles in the contemporary church today, it's a juvenilization of Christianity really, is due to the fact that the young people have been conditioned to think that church should be more glamorous than it really is. But you know, the fact is, my friends, the Word of God is central. That's why our pulpit's in the middle. We don't put our pulpit on the side as if it's an afterthought or something we do periodically, but it's right in the center. The architecture of the way our church buildings are set up is purposeful because not the preacher's supposed to be the focus of attention, but that the Word of God is to be central, you see. We come to hear Jehovah speak. We come to hear the Lord speak to us through his word. Have you ever met somebody that said, I just wish God would speak to me? I always want to ask those folks, have you been reading your Bible? Because the way God speaks to us today is through what he's already spoken in Scripture primarily. He's never going to reveal new truth. Now, he may give you personal guidance or give you a personal encouragement through somebody else's love or a Hallmark card you get in the mail or a song you hear on the radio. But I'll tell you, as far as revealing his will, his truth for us, all of that has already been given to us in the scriptures. The Bible is a thorough furnisher and all good works. He's given us, Peter says, all things that pertain unto life and godliness. The Bible itself affirms the sufficiency of scripture. You know, we talk about the inspiration of the Bible. That is, it's God's very own word. We talk about the preservation of the Bible. He's kept it. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall never pass away. But we don't often talk about the sufficiency of Scripture, how thorough it is, how comprehensive it is in addressing every matter that we need to know regarding faith and life. God's word is a thorough furnisher. It's profitable. Of course, the next question would be, are you profiting from it? It's profitable for doctrine, that is, for teaching. It'll fill your mind with the facts of truth. It's profitable for teaching, for doctrine, for correction. It'll show you not only what God requires of you, but it'll show you when you go wrong. It corrects. And then it'll show you how to get right again. It's profitable for correction, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness, and it'll show you how to keep right, how to stay on the right course that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished, entirely comprehensively equipped unto all good works. So the shepherd is given the charge from the Lord Jesus Christ to take care of the Lord's people, and he does that primarily by feeding them, by shepherding them through the word of God. Back to our text. I will give you pastors according to my heart who shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. Now, what do you need most in your life? What do I need most? I need knowledge and understanding. 
I don't know if you're like me, but I listen sometimes to what's going on in popular culture, and it's so fast-paced, and there's so many, you know, look here, look here, you know, so many distractions and diversions and so much confusion, and you wonder who's telling the truth and who isn't, and I think, man, I need knowledge. I need wisdom. I need understanding. Well, my beloved, if you need knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, come hear the shepherd and let him feed you from this book with knowledge and understanding. Because the fog will clear, and you'll begin to see clearly, even if it's just for a few moments. The hope is that the fog of war will dissipate, and you'll see the Lord clearly and His will clearly when you leave this place, and you'll be able to implement it in the next week. And you say, well, I'm getting confused again on Tuesday afternoon, Brother Mike, then pick up the Scriptures and read Proverbs, read Psalms, read the Gospels, read the Epistles. Pray. Listen to Primitive Baptist preaching in the various kinds of formats in which it's available today. Expose yourself to God's people. You see, it's important that we keep our thinking straight. The pastor, here's where it all starts in the church, in the flock, with the pastor teacher who feeds the lambs. Now, the call of Joshua in the Old Testament was defined in terms of this shepherding metaphor. Would you listen to Numbers 27, verse 16? Here's the call of Joshua. Moses speaks to the Lord, and he says, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation. Moses said, Lord, they need a leader, which may go out before them and which may go in before them. That is, he's going to take the initiative, and which may lead them out and which may bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord be not as sheep, which have no shepherd. And the Lord said unto Moses, here's God's answer to the prayer, Take thee Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay thine hand upon him. I want you to officially sanction him, Moses. That's like the ordination. And set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation, and give him a charge in their sight. And thou shalt put some of thine honor upon him, that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. So notice the structure of how this was set up. God answers Moses' prayer for leadership by saying, Take Joshua, ordain him, put your honor upon him, let the people know that he has been authorized to fill this role, and then he can take the initiative, be their leader, so that they are not like sheep which have no shepherd. And again, David's reign as king. You remember I told you how he was a shepherd as a lad? And he slew the lion and the bear. Even when he became a king, he's still a shepherd. Listen to this. Psalm 78, verse 70. God chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. Now, it's like God reached over here in the hill country of Bethlehem, Judah, and picked up this teenage lad named David from the sheepfolds, from following the ewes great with young, and God brought him to feed or to shepherd Jacob, his people. You've been shepherding sheep, now I want you to shepherd people. He took him from the sheepfold, from following the ewes great with youngs, and he brought him to feed. There's that word again, feed my lambs. Poimane is the New Testament word. Brought him to feed Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. So he fed them. God said, I want you to do for the people what you've been doing for those sheep. Do you know what leadership meant as the king of the nation? It meant caring for them. Not using them. You know, that's the difference in David and King Saul. 
King Saul bilked the people. He fleeced the flock. He abused his role and imposed heavy burdens upon them. You know, so many leaders today exploit their position for their own personal benefit. So many leaders today use their power in order to get richer for their own personal agendas. My beloved, may I say that's what Saul did. David, though, is a shepherd. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have mayors and superintendents and governors and presidents in our political system who really genuinely cared about the people that they led? Now, sometimes we say they rule over us. They really don't rule. They're not kings, okay? They lead us. We're ruled by the Constitution. You know, this isn't Rex Lex that the king is law. This is Lex Rex. The law is king, okay? So we're ruled by this document. I hear people say, Lord, bless those that rule over us. Well, they really don't rule, or they shouldn't. The president's not our king, okay? The governor's not a king. He doesn't make the law. He's supposed to lead us and enforce the law, but it's the law itself that leads us. But back to the ranch, though, before I get too far off the beaten path. David was taken from the sheepfold to do the same for people as king that he did for those little lambs. Now, when he followed the ewes, great, that's the mother sheep, right? The ewe, great with lamb. She was ready to give birth, and he took care of her. He noticed her. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have a king or a president or a governor or a mayor or a superintendent or a pastor who truly had a heart for the people that he served? And it says, so he fed them. God said, I want you to do this. David might have said, I don't know how to be a king. You just do for the nation what you've been doing for that flock. And here's what happened. So he fed them. He shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart. I love that and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. Yes, he had talents, he had skill. He was good at what he did, but he also had a good heart. And by the way, that's the most important thing in pastoring, in any form of leadership, is to have a good heart. Is to have a good heart. So here's the point. I will give pastors, I will give shepherds according to my heart, says God. And in taking care of his sheep in this world, Here's one of the ways he does it. He takes people who have proven themselves faithful in that which is least, like David did with his father's sheep in the wilderness. And he gives them opportunity to care for and to minister to the needs of God's people whom he calls his sheep. Now, with that said, let's make this point that the Lord is the great shepherd of his people. He's a shepherd himself. Psalm 80 verse 1 says, Give ear, O God, thou shepherd of Israel, which leadest forth thy people like a flock. God is called the shepherd of Israel. And even the Messiah is prophesied of in the 40th chapter of Isaiah. Verse 11 says, He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gently lead those that are with young. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom. What tender terms. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm. That's tender to me. He shall carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. 
Now, there have been a few times where the Lord's, you know, he's put the rod of correction on me in my life. But I'll have to tell you, far and away, the preponderance of evidence is, for the most part, that he has been very, very gentle with me in my life. I mean, I've been handed so many things on a silver platter. I have to tell you, I've lived a comfortable life compared to a lot of people. You know, I've never missed a meal. I've had comfortable growing up years. I had plenty of opportunities to be educated and to have medical care, and I've had transportation, and life's been relatively easy for me, and I suspect, I know some of you have had really a really hard time, and you've had your moments, but for the most part, I think we would say compared to generations before us and compared to a lot of people in third world countries today, the Lord's dealt with us quite gently, hasn't he? Gently, Lord, oh, gently lead us. Through this lonely veil of tears, the hymn writer says. David said on one occasion, Lord, your gentleness has made me great. I like that. God's been so tender and kind to me. And it's given me encouragement. It's made me strong. As the shepherd, he's very gentle with his little ones. Jacob blesses his grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and he says, may the Lord that fed me or shepherded me all my life long. Notice how he thinks of his past. It's like I've been his little sheep and he's been taking care of me. Now we sang just a moment ago, the Lord, my precious shepherd is, I am his little sheep. And I want you to think about that image for a moment. Isn't it interesting that God does not compare his people to mighty sequoias or redwoods, to rocks of Gibraltar, to immovable objects and unstoppable forces, but he compares his people to sheep. Now, I have to tell you, there are few animals more vulnerable than a sheep. A sheep is not fierce. He doesn't have sharp teeth. He doesn't have a threatening appearance. When's the last time you looked at a sheep and you shrunk in horror? I've never done it. Now, I've looked at some Brahma bulls before, you know. I've watched PBR rodeo circuit, you know. Oh, that's one of my favorite pastimes. But anyway, I've watched these Brahma bulls. Thought, Ooh, I wouldn't, wouldn't get too close to that fella. I've watched some lions and tigers and bears and seen those sharp teeth. But a sheep does not have intimidating features. And a sheep does not have long, sharp fangs or teeth. It's not fleet of foot. It's not fast. It's not like an antelope or a gazelle, which can run and jump and climb high. A sheep is not real athletic. You don't see sheep competing in a derby, racing each other like these thoroughbred horses did at Pimlico for the Preakness Stakes yesterday. Sheep can't run away. They, they can't fight back. In fact, they're not really very smart. Now, I don't mean to offend anybody here this morning. But there's a reason the Lord compares his children to sheep. The fact is that a sheep will see a piece of grass that looks good and he'll go over there and pick it up and then he'll see one over yonder and he'll go after that and then one over there. And if he's not careful, he's wandered away from the rest of the fold because he's not aware of the danger that he's in. The Bible says all we like sheep have gone astray. It's just in the nature of a sheep to wander. Do you tend to wander from the Lord? Do you tend to just go in your own direction and before you know it, you think, I'm so spiritually cold, I don't know what happened to me. 
Lord, where'd you go? He didn't go anywhere. He's where he's always been. It's you. It's me that has strayed, you see. That's always the case. Sheep are pretty defenseless, vulnerable creatures. In fact, when a sheep gets a little too fat and heavy, if it lays down in a soft piece of ground, gravity takes over. It'll roll over onto its back and its feet will stick straight up in the air and that sheep cannot ride itself. And it will suffocate. If a wolf doesn't get it before it dies, then it will finally suffocate because it's in a helpless condition. The Bible word is cast to describe that. The Bible word to describe that is cast. It's cast down. That sheep, the shepherd would say, the technical term is it's cast. And if a shepherd doesn't come find it soon, he's lost that lamb from his fold. That's how dependent a sheep is on the shepherd. Aren't you glad the Lord is the great shepherd of his people? Aren't you glad, dear friends, that he takes care of them? And if you want to know how well he takes care of them, read that beloved 23rd Psalm, where David, who himself was a shepherd, thinks about his life now, probably in his later years. He thinks back about those pastoral, easy, calm scenes of his youth in which he watched over the sheep, and he says, you know, I'm just like those sheep. The Lord's been watching over me all my life. I wonder if you could say that today, dear friend. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. If you can say that, you're a rich character this morning. Lord, you've been my shepherd. Lord, I couldn't have done it on my own. You've taken care of me. And because of all that you provided for me, I'm totally dependent. You know, that sheep's not like, well... Let's uh, get together. I think, Shepherd, if you'll come next, uh, next Tuesday, then we'll have time to meet with you. But until then, we're sort of, we've got a project going. Sheep don't get together. They don't make plans for themselves. They are totally vulnerable, and they need somebody to watch over them. That's exactly like us. We need the Lord to watch over us. My friends, how wonderful it is to know that he's been faithful. The Lord, Jehovah, is my shepherd. I shall not want. That means that he fills every need that I have. Whatever your needs are, your heavenly shepherd is able, he's adequate, he's enough, he's sufficient to meet that need. And he's done that in my life. You know, I've gone through trials, tribulations, and I've come out of every one of them. Now, I haven't come out without being scarred. I've got a few battle wounds from the past, but, but I've survived. Like our brother told me this morning, I'm still here. And uh, we're still here, thank the Lord, and the only reason is because we've had somebody looking after us. Now, perhaps you say, preacher, just a minute, that's offensive to me. I'm a self-made man. Everything I have, I've worked hard for, nobody's helped me. Maybe you're like Jimmy Stewart in that movie Shenandoah. Do you remember that scene in which Martha has died, his, the, the matriarch, and he's there with his sons around the table, and he said, well, I guess we need to pray. He wasn't really a religious man. It was she that kept them in, you know, in the straight and narrow. But uh, he said, well, let's pray. Martha would want us to do that. And so he prays. He said, Lord, uh, we uh, broke this ground, and we sowed it, and uh, we harvested it. And uh, we've baked it, and we're about to eat it. And if we hadn't done it, then it wouldn't be here for us to eat. Amen. <laughs> That's his prayer. That's pretty close. That may not be verbatim, but it is pretty close to what he said. 
And I think there are a lot of people like that say, Lord, uh, I'm a self-made man. Thank you that I'm such a great person. You know, congratulating himself, thumbing his own lapels, saying, my, what a good boy am I. I have to tell you, dear friends, if you understand you're not a self-made person, that if the Lord hadn't blessed you, then you would have made a wreck of your life. You'd have self-destructed a long time ago. Then you know that you need a shepherd. Praise God, we have a good shepherd in Jesus Christ. And one of the ways that this good shepherd takes care of his flock is by giving them pastors according to his heart who will feed them with his word and set the example of what it means to live a Christian life, not perfectly. Now, I'm not a perfect leader. I'm not a perfect shepherd. Shepherds are sheep too. Never forget that. Preachers are people too. I need a shepherd just as much as you do. But praise God for the arrangement he's given us in the church and praise God that he is our ultimate shepherd who takes care of us. Now I got to about half of the material I wanted to this morning. I said this is going to take three or four sermons. It may take 15, who knows. But anyway, praise God as little lambs that we have a good shepherd in Jesus Christ who put himself between his sheep and their danger. Think of a lion, a predator, a wolf, a jackal, a hyena coming after the flock. What would you think of a shepherd that turned tail and ran and said, Woo, I'm going to get out while the getting's good and left the sheep vulnerable to the enemy's attack? You'd say, that man is not a true shepherd. He's a hireling. But what would you think of a shepherd if he stood between the flock? It may mean his life. He's willing to lay his life down for the sheep. That's what Jesus did on the cross for you and me. And my friends, may I say, as his little lambs, we ought to be so grateful for what he's done for us. Not only did he do that at the cross, but he's provided for us. He's led us by the still waters. He's made us lie down in the green pastures. He's led us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He's kept us with his rod and staff. This my guard and that my guide. He's taken care of his little ones. And he's promised goodness and mercy to follow us all the days of our life until we reach home at last and dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Praise God for our shepherd, Jesus Christ. Yeah.